I think we'd be hard-pressed to find a person who would disagree with that statement. What we do in life matters. I mean, of course, uh, be diligent, work hard. You, you shouldn't shirk your responsibilities. Make a difference in someone's life. It matters. Well, why? I don't know. Don't ask me that. Don't be philosophical on me. It, it just matters. Well, enter the Christian with his strange, otherworldly perspective. What we do in life matters because Jesus is coming back. And when he comes, there will be a reckoning. Now, what could be more offensive in our secular age than that? I um, remember working in campus ministry, and I can't tell you how many times um, I saw the look of scoffing on students' faces when I would tell them with as much gentleness and clarity as I could muster that God owned them and that one day they would have to stand before him and give an account for their lives. Brothers and sisters, if this passage hits your heart as it should, there should be a serious and thoughtful pause concerning your life and how it's being lived, but also a deep, hope-filled longing to be found faithful by the one who has already secured your salvation. We are living between two worlds, aren't we? On the one end is the climax of all history, the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ with his, his ascension at the right hand of the Father. And at the other end is the return of the King and the consummation of his kingdom with the new heavens and the new earth. And you and I are here in between, in the delay, March 6, 2016. And Tom has been leading us so well through Matthew's gospel. Uh, remember back in chapter 23, uh, Jesus condemns the religious authorities for their hypocrisy. He utters seven woes and he laments over Jerusalem for their unbelief. Uh, chapter 24, Jesus leaves the temple with his disciple. He prophesies its destruction, which as Tom argued is a picture of the tribulation that's going to be with us until the end of the age. Up the Mount of Olives they go, he and his uh, disciples, and they ask him, when will these things be and what will be, will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus, mercifully, he provides them answers to their questions, beginning in verse 4, chapter 24, all the way to the end of chapter 25. I don't know if, if I had ever noticed the full volume of, of his answers to his disciples until now. His main point in view of the coming of the Son of Man is to be ready. Stay alert. Stay awake. Watch, therefore, he says in uh, verse 13 of chapter 25, right before our passage today. Watch, therefore. And then look at chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So that's where we're headed. In two days, it's coming. The King will be crucified. And so Jesus wants us to know as he heads to the cross, he wants us to know and his disciples, I'm coming back. But will he find faith on the earth? Now the parable of talents, it might be one of those passages you kind of just skip over. If you've ever done that in scripture, not really sure what's going on there. I'm just going to keep going. Um, what happened to the gospel, you might say? I thought I was saved by grace through faith. And here's this mention of stewarding talents and being evaluated at the end. Uh, sounds like works righteousness to me. 
Uh, then you got this poor guy who gets the raw deal, right? He just gets one talent. He didn't have much business ability, apparently. He didn't know what to do. He just put it in the ground. You know, uh, why does the master have to be so harsh on him? Uh, maybe you've had compassion on, on this third servant. So perhaps in the back of your mind, you've always had an uncomfortable relationship with this parable. God willing, we'll put those frustrations to rest today. I have three very simple points which follow the structure of the parable. Uh, first of all, God gives and we receive. Uh, secondly, we are called to steward what God has given. And lastly, God judges our faithfulness. So God gives and we receive. We steward what God has given. And lastly, God judges our faithfulness. So first of all, God gives and we receive. The overall point of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he's revealing that he is that king. So verse 14, for it will be like a man going on a journey. It, well, what does he mean by it? Well, you could say for the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey. How do I know that? Verse 1, just jump up to verse 1. Um, the, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. Jesus is just sharing another parable. It's consecutive, back to back. Uh, about his future kingdom when he will return. As for now, he's the man going on a journey. So we're, we are in the delay. And in the meantime, he has entrusted his property to his servants. We're supposed to understand that we're supposed to turn a profit uh, with what he has given us. We're supposed to do something with those talents. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. So our first point, God gives, we receive. Whatever the servants have, it's the master's property. The servants simply receive what the master gives. And he gives these things called talents or talentons in the Greek. What's a talent or a talenton? It's money. That's money. You see that in verse 18 where the third servant hid his master's money. A talent was a lot of money. It's about 20 years uh, worth of uh, laborer's wages. Today's terms would be like $600,000. So this master, he's a wealthy man, but he's also discerning. He knows these servants. He, he gives according to their ability, verse 15. So apparently they don't have equal business skills, so he gives them talents based on what he, think they, he thinks they can handle. So what do you make of that? Is it, is it unfair that they get different amounts? Well, it's perfectly equitable. Remember, God is the giver. God is good and he does good in all that he does. So you simply cannot impugn the character of God in how he dispenses his gifts to different people. The fact that you have been entrusted with what you perceive to be less than another person is a point at which you need to grow up spiritually. You're failing to appreciate the goodness of God in your life and what he has given you and so you miss out on the blessing. John Piper, he recently posted this. Occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped would be. Grieve the losses. Then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life you have. That's a good word. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? So everything we have is from the hand of God. And God's hand is gracious, isn't it? So what we have is very valuable talents were very valuable 
God gives, we receive. And again, the master entrusts his property to each servant according to his ability. So God gives gifts uh, for what we're fitted for. He is mindful of our frame. He doesn't use the same metrics for, it, for everybody. And that's a good thing. Whatever God has entrusted to you, all the resources are there for you to manage it well. And he does intend for you to manage it. So this isn't just let go and, and let God. There is work to be done, friends. Industry. God has called us to use our talents uh, for his glory. So receive what God has given. Embrace the life you have. But that doesn't mean throwing up your hands and, and just sitting on it. No, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. We are called to steward what God has given. That's my second point. You notice how the man who received five talents, he went at once and traded with them. Verse 16. It's like David. David and Goliath. You remember he ran quickly toward the battle line uh, to, to confront Goliath. He knew what he was supposed to do for the honor of God and he got right down to business. Same with this, this first servant. He knew what his master wanted him to do. He no doubt was emboldened uh, by his master's confidence in him. He was eager to carry it out. And he knew someday my master is going to come back and he's going to check on me. And I want to be found faithful. I want to be ready. And in the end, he doubled his master's investment. The servant who received two talents did the same thing, got right to work and made a 100% return. Well, then comes verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And that's supposed to shock you. You did what? 20 years worth of wages and you put it in the ground? I, I know burying treasure was common in those days. They didn't have safe deposit boxes, but this is not what the master had intended. He was supposed to turn a profit with what the master had given him. This guy's just being lazy. So have you taken stock of all the Lord has provided you? How are you stewarding your talents, your skills, and your position, your education, and, and yes, your money, all that God has given you. Men, have you been given a wife? Are you loving her well? Are you loving her as Christ has loved you? I think about this. Until God takes you home, you are the only husband she will ever have. Or your children, you are the only daddy they will ever know. You are the keeper and custodian of a family. That's God's property entrusted to you. And that should drive you to your knees in prayer. It does me because I want to be found faithful, not negligent. How might you be hiding your master's money? So this isn't just about your possessions or, or what happens to be in your checking account. The sum total of your life with all its varying circumstances has been sovereignly directed by God who does, things all, who does all things according to the purpose of his own will. So all of it should be rendered back to him in worship. Are there God-given opportunities and responsibilities in your life that you've just buried? They're, they're just collecting dust somewhere, neglected. Is there a phone call 
you need to make? Is there a family relationship that you've just let grow cold? What about that couple next door that, that you hardly ever talk to? I know we're all guilty of this, right? Uh, Acts seventeen twenty six. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. So your neighbors are not there by accident, and neither are you. We have to steward that privilege well. Now look, if you are languishing there in your seat in guilt for your lack of activity, that is not my intention. But if I could, if I could offer you a few ideas to help you get out the door, what would be some good ideas? Well, concerning hospitality and our neighbors next to us, how about inviting them over for a meal? You know, simple hospitality and kindness mean more to people than you might imagine. <clears throat> and in terms of proximity to another believer, you just might be it. You know, you could be the only one they know. You are the anomaly in the sea of unbelief that they are swimming in. So steward that privilege well. Now, you've got to be wise. I know you're going to be living next to these people for years, likely. Evangelism is an art, right? Um, but eventually, you've got to break the ice somehow. So uh, you're, you're with your neighbors. You've invited them over. You're back there flipping burgers on your deck. And you ask them, are you interested in spiritual things at all? What's your background? Did you grow up going to church? You can do that. People love to talk about themselves. Ask them questions. And you will be amazed at what God will do with with those kind of conversations, those, those steps of faith you take. You will be sharing the gospel on your back deck before you know it. So I encourage you with that. If the fear of inadequacy or the fear of rejection has got you in its grip, ask God to take that away. And he will. The Lord will meet you there. Tell him how much you want to be faithful and acknowledge your weakness and ask him for help. He's not the severe tyrant that the third servant makes him out to be. And we'll get there in just a moment. But the Lord is our judge. That's our third point. God judges our faithfulness. Verse 19, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So there you see it again. Now after a long time. So there is a delay. uh, But that doesn't make the coming judgment any less sure. There will be an accounting of all that we've done. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Remember that line from Gladiator? And do you see the repetition of the words? They, They each came forward. They came forward. And so will we. 2 Corinthians 4.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I'd I'd wager this judgment of believers doesn't sit well with many of us. It's unsettling. It's a fearful prospect. Because you have Romans 8.1, right? Uh, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But here it's talking about my actions, my life being evaluated and assessed. So how do I navigate this? Well, it's important to see that for the believer, this is not an assessment leading to condemnation. But it does lead to reward. So the integrity of the gospel is not on the line here. Tom said it last week. Our good works don't save us, right? But they are an indication of whether or not we know the Savior. A tree will be known by its fruits. 
A believer's heart yearns to bear fruit for God. He wants to please the master of the house. He wants to love what God loves and hate what God hates. He has a greater fear of displeasing God than of displeasing people. He wants to grow up. That's what the true believer wants to do. He wants to please his master. And the presence of faith is the key, faithfulness. So you look at the actual dialogue between the master and his servants. The first servant comes forward, master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. So he offers back to the master what he initially had received with a profit. And you notice that little word here? Here, I have made five talents more. Other translations say, look or, or see what I have gained. So do you, do you sense his enthusiasm, his excitement? Almost like, count it yourself, master. See, see, look what I've done. And he's ready. He's ready to stand before him. And then the words that we long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he says the exact same phrase to the man who was given two talents. And what's that supposed to teach us? It's not so much about the quantity of the return as the faithfulness of the man. That's encouraging, isn't it? And do you catch the tone of the master? He is warm-hearted. He recognizes a job well done and he gives a reward. And apparently he, he considers 100 years worth of wages to be a little thing. Now, how do I get 100 Five times 20, 20 years uh, worthy, worth of wages times five talents. Anyway, compared to what's coming, it's a little thing. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much, he says. Managing a heavier load in the kingdom of heaven is a reward. It is a joy to be in the employment of the king. So when we read, enter into the joy of your master, this earthbound parable about a master and his servants, it suddenly bursts its boundary lines out into eternity. Because this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. It's about the coming of the Son of Man, the return of the King, and the reckoning he will bring. So in the story, you can imagine the master and his two faithful servants getting together for a feast afterwards, and they are happy to see each other. It's been many years, and they recount together uh, what they did in business all of these years. We can imagine the joy and fellowship of such a moment, but cast your eye on what it will be like to sit down at the table of God one day. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Don't you want to just lean in to that day? Knowing now, knowing now that you're already accepted and forgiven and made right with God to then do everything in your power to please him. Paul says we make it our aim to please him. And then comes verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Game over. Game over. This is your moment. Before the king, well, the master anyway, after all of these years, and you indict his character. That's the first words out of your mouth. And you, you're so long-winded, you have an explanation here. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Look at what he's saying there. He's saying, I don't trust you. 
You're a worthless businessman, a ruthless businessman, but that's a lie. That's a lie, right? His master doesn't exact from the men with no regard as to their ability. He gives them jobs in keeping with their ability. That's the mark of a good master, not an evil one. So this is unjustified suspicion, as one commentator put it. This guy doesn't know his master. That's his main mistake. He feels no loyalty to him, no eagerness to please him. He doesn't obey him. Why was he afraid? I I guess he was afraid because based on his flawed understanding of his master, uh, had he lost the one talent in trading, um, his master would have demanded it of him anyway. And so, you know, that's the kind of man he is. He reaps where he doesn't sow. He gathers where he doesn't scatter. So in a sense, he made me dig that hole. I had no other option. Bottom line, we're not meant to think well of this last man. His life stands as a warning to us. We're not meant to follow in his footsteps. He's not a worthy example to follow. Jesus clearly identifies himself as the master in this parable. And the master calls this man wicked and slothful. And he uses the man's words against him. In verse 26, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Well, if that's true, you could have at least put what I gave you in the bank to to, uh, get some interest. You know, you're, you're not even following your own definition of who I am. The third servant didn't really know his master. He was guilty of of this unjustified suspicion. What about you? Do you think rightly about God? What do you think about God? And is it true? So we see the story concludes. The man's talent is taken away and given to the man with ten talents. Now is Jesus saying here we should take from the poor and give to the rich? Come on, no. That's not what he's saying. This is what happens to the righteous and the wicked. The righteous are diligent by faith. They give of themselves in service to other people and to God. And they end up with an abundance. An abundance of blessing and joy. The wicked, on the other hand, are only concerned with themselves. And so the little they do have, it's, it's taken from them. That's the principle there. God will not turn a blind eye. Unfaithful negligence will be punished. The third servant squandered what the master gave him. He had no sense of holy obligation to do his master's bidding because he had no love for the master. He didn't know him. He had no faith. He squandered his life and he was cast into hell. But the faithful will be rewarded. We may not always see the blessing of our faithfulness in this life. But don't forget, after a long time, the master of those servants came back. He came back. Jesus will set things right. So those battles you fight in your heart against sin, those unseen ways you have served others and prayed for others, the times you have absorbed the cost of someone else's sin and you've gone on loving them anyway, God sees and God knows. Not one deed done by faith will go unnoticed. Our faithful service to God in this life will be revealed and rewarded. And the crowns we receive, Revelation talks about us receiving crowns. The crowns we receive, what do we do? We cast them before the throne on our knees 
in worship. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So any virtue we attain in this life, any good deed we offer to God, finds its source in him. Friends, until that day, let's be about our Father's business. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, what can we do in response to this word? Would you help us to change? We want to be done with tired habits. We want to bear fruit for God to please the master, to be found faithful in the end. Oh Lord, would you do this in us by the power of your spirit? And help us as we come to the table now to ponder how we have been purchased at great cost by the faithfulness of the Son. In his name we pray, amen.